I want to say good morning to you all. Certainly a blessed opportunity to be here in the house of the Lord. That is to say, amongst his saints that have come and prepared their hearts and minds to worship him. To our visitors, you indeed are our honored guests. We're so delighted to be able to worship with you. Uh, I know with the news of this past week pertaining to Brother Larry West, our hearts are heavy, but it is so delightful to know the life that he would have led and the service that he would have shown forth in this region of the state and in the world. Uh, We, with heavy hearts, are still considering our theme for this month, making reference to our reception. If we remember where we started, I know February is a short month, but if we remember where we started dealing with reception, we might remember going back to the book of John, the first chapter. In the book of John, the first chapter, the man there is declaring and describing this word of God that was with God since the beginning. This word of God being with God since the beginning and then making reference to how this word would even put on flesh in John, the first chapter at verse number 14. But as we see the discussion of the word, how this word would be the light, this word being a light that shines in a dark place, according to John, the first chapter at verse number five, we spent week one discussing how many had the opportunity to receive that word. In John, the first chapter, verse number 12, we see that reception making reference to how this word was brought into the world, coming unto his own, making reference how Jesus, the Christ, came and was a minister. As we've been studying in the book of Romans, the 15th chapter, he was a minister to the circumcision. He was there to be able to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. We'll get there just momentarily, but you might remember that in John, the first chapter at verse number 12, it says, but as many as received him to them, he gave them power to be the sons of God, even to them that would believe on his name. Lo and behold, that's how we have our faith. That's how we have our Christianity. And that is how we frame our walk in this world as those that have received the son receiving Christ are able to also believe on his name. A power was given unto us to be the sons of God. Then we transition into discussing those being able to receive the word of God. You might remember over in John, the sixth chapter and John, the sixth chapter, making reference to Christ speaking to his disciples, speaking to individuals and explaining in John, the sixth chapter, verse 44. No man can come to me except the father, which hath sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that have heard and have learned of the father cometh unto me. We spoke a little bit about Christ's teachings. We spoke on how those individuals that would hearken unto Christ 
were ultimately those individuals that would be able to be given the power to be the sons of God. But in that, they would have had to receive his teaching. We think about John, the 14th chapter at verse number 15, where Christ would say, if you love me, keep my commandments. We think about later in Matthew, the 28th chapter in verses 18 through 20, where Christ is commissioning his apostles to go, his disciples to go into all the world, teaching them to obey all of the things that I have commanded you. Included in that is the baptism, the baptism in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost. Nevertheless, we dealt with receiving Christ, receiving his words. In week two, we dealt with the discussion of receiving instruction, how we as Christians need to have a fundamental appreciation of what it is to receive instruction. Using 2 Timothy, the third chapter at verses 16 and 17, where the scripture there would explain that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God breathed. It is for doctrine. It's for reproof. And it's for correction that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. But in that scripture, it also makes reference that these scriptures are given to us for our instruction in righteousness. We track the Proverbs writer and we track how instruction was imperative and important for a wise son. Important for a wise being that wants to grow up and be full of wisdom in their older age. They have to be able to receive instruction. Furthermore, we discussed correction. Our receiving of correction. How it is so important. We get that correction point in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 as well. The scripture is given to us for doctrine, reproof, and even correction. We see and we utilize that parallel of a father and son dynamic, how it is imperative that a father would instruct his children, but also correct his children. Spare not the rod, as the Proverbs writer would say in chapter 23 and verse number 13, because in not sparing the rod on your son or on your daughter, you are able to save his or her soul. All of these things tie in together. We've dealt with receiving Christ, receiving instruction, receiving correction. Last week, we spoke a little bit of time about receiving a crown. Remember what Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verse number eight, that henceforth is laid up for him a crown of righteousness, a crown of life. He's tracked his life. He's looked back. Even though he wasn't a perfect individual, he said he had fought the good fight. He has kept the faith. Henceforth, a crown of life is received or is laid up for him. And all those that would believe, all those that would love his glorious appearing. We need to be looking for Christ Jesus to come back, looking for Christ Jesus to come back, to be able to redeem his church, the same church he would have shed his blood for to be able to redeem us from all of our sins. Just a little bit of time last week, we spoke on this discussion of reception as it pertains to those who would receive a greater condemnation. We took this scripture from James, the third chapter, specifically at verse number one. In James, the third chapter, in verse number one, it says, Be ye not many teachers, or be not many masters, for you will receive a greater condemnation. In other translations, it makes reference to a stricter judgment, making reference to those individuals knowing better how more is going to be required of them. As we have knowledge, as we are teachers, we ought to be in a position where we understand that we could be potentially receiving a greater 
condemnation or stricter judgment when it comes to how we live our lives. The James writer or the writer of the book of James, James himself, the Lord's brother, would explain this and would explain this in the context of us being able to bridle our own tongues. If we're not able to bridle our own tongues, how will we be able to bridle our own bodies? But nevertheless, we see that if we can control our tongues, if we can control what we say, if we can control uh, how we speak to people, we will also be a perfect man, being able to control even our very actions. We ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak. But nevertheless, James was encouraging individuals not to be many teachers because there is a greater condemnation that is going to be received if we fall short of the glory of God. All this ties in together because that brings us to today. Today we're talking about reception in reference to the promises, in reference to the promises. Certainly we've discussed that crown of life that we're striving for. We remember what Paul would explain in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, how those that are laboring and striving for the masteries are doing so so that they can receive a crown that is corruptible. But we are looking and striving for a crown that is incorruptible, that fades not away, that is laid up for us in heaven's eternal glory. Hence is the, uh, the, the scope of what we are doing in our Christianity, of how we are living our lives. The whole premise of God's word is it's based on a promise. You think about the context of that father-son dynamic again. If a father would promise to their child something, oh, I'll take you to the amusement park. Oh, I'll take you to Toys R Us. I don't know if they still have Toys R Us anymore. I think they went under. But nevertheless, I'll do something for you. What is that child going to say when the time expires and the father has not yet fulfilled the promise? The child is going to say, but you promise. Maybe you think back as a husband to a wife. You know, you as your husband, you're promising your wife to take her to that, that fine restaurant that she so loves and that she loves to dine and spend time with you at. If the time comes and that day comes in which you promise What is that wife going to say? But you promise. Receiving a promise. To know that God, God Almighty, our everlasting Father, has given us a promise. Given us a promise and has given given us this promise through his word. In which we can track. In which we can look and see how every time he's promised his children something, he has not gone back on that. Thinking about the whole premise of our Christianity, it is based on a promise. And it's based on a promise that God gave many, many moons ago. Perhaps you think back to Genesis. In Genesis, the 12th chapter, promise starting with this man, Abraham. Abram at the time. In Genesis, the 12th chapter, you might remember that God would tell Abram to come up out of your kindred. Go into a land that I will show you. Come up out of that and go into a land where I will show you. Abram believed God. That was accounted unto him for righteousness. But in Genesis, the 12th chapter, in verse number three, you see the premise of this promise that we even hold fast today. Because in this promise, it says, In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. As we continue to track over time, we even get to that man, Moses. Yes, that man, Moses, was given a law. Yes, that law was given to the Israelites. But that giving of the law to the Israelites could not disannul a promise that would happen some hundreds of years before. When you think about that promise over and over, you might think about 
in Deuteronomy the 18th chapter at verse number 15, when God would give a promise to that man Moses, who at the time was a mediator, who at the time was a prophet, who at the time was that man standing before God and his children, that friend of God, speaking with God face to face or mouth to mouth. This man Moses was given a promise. This man Moses had to give that promise and convey it to the Israelites, making reference to that there was going to be a man, a prophet risen up among me, amongst your brethren. You are going to have to hear him. You are going to have to hear and receive his words. We think about the promise to Abraham. We think about the promise to Moses. We think about the promises that even that man David would consistently discuss in all his Psalms, starting all the way back to the second Psalm. The second Psalm specifically at verse number six, where God would say that, behold, thou art my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You would have to go all the way to the book of Hebrews to explain how that promise would be fulfilled in Christ's resurrection. But nevertheless, we continue to read in the 16th Psalm, specifically at verse number 10, that man, David, prophesying, thou will not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Neither will you leave my soul in hell. David is talking about his own soul, talking about how it would not be left in hell. But he's also talking about the Holy One, making reference to Christ Jesus. This promise that was going to come to Israel and it was going to bless all of the families of the world. You will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Why is that important? We'll get to that in a moment. But as we're over time tracking the various promises that God would have given to his people. In Genesis, the 12th chapter, in Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, in Psalms, the second chapter, in the 40th division of Psalm, we already discussed the 16th division, but in the 40th division of Psalm, where he would be writing, Lo, I've come to do thy will, O Lord. I come in the volume of a book. We might remember in the Psalm, the 22nd division, where David is, starts out the, this Psalm by saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We remember that David would be talking about the suffering and the agony that he would be going through, making reference to his enemies. But you might see later in the book of Psalm, you see some prophecy making reference to how his joints were going to be out of joint. His, pierced, his hands were going to be pierced. When you go back and you read the history of the Old Testament, David's hands were never pierced. This is the Holy Ghost speaking by the mouth of David to confirm those promises that God would have given. We continue on. We see in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, the suffering servant, Christ Jesus, who is going to be numbered with the transgressors. His grade was going to be made with the rich. You were going to see in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter at verse number five and following. You see that this man was going to have to endure some stripes. But healing was going to have to come over and over and over again. God's declaring through his servants, the prophets, that there was a promise that was to come. You might remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel, the fourth chapter, as Daniel was there giving the meaning of that dream to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, the fourth chapter and what's happening of this statue of this statue that they had a dream of with all of these various metals. You might remember in Daniel, the fourth chapter specifically, or Daniel, the second chapter, rather specifically at verse number 44, making reference to the days of these last Kings that God is going to establish his everlasting kingdom. It was an everlasting covenant that God would make with his people. 
that was also rehearsed in Micah, the fourth chapter, in verse number two, that the mountain of the Lord would be established. Over time, the biblical narrative is building and it's pointing and it's bringing us to that man, Jesus Christ. Many more times. I even think about when God was dealing with Judah and Jerusalem through his prophet, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, the 32nd chapter. And in Jeremiah, the 32nd chapter, I believe it's at verse 39 and 40. He's making a promise of this everlasting covenant that was going to be unto your children and unto their children. You might remember in the book of Joel, over and over, all of these prophets are testifying of God's promises. In the book of Joel, we're in Joel in verses in chapter number in chapter two, Joel chapter two, verses twenty-eight through thirty-two, where Joel is making reference to all of those individuals that will call on the name of the Lord, that they shall be saved. And then you see in Joel chapter two, verse thirty-two, that the Lord our God will call on individuals as well. Over and over, we see in the biblical narrative. That brings us to Acts, the 26th chapter, which the brother just read unto you. What are we talking about today? We're talking about being able to receive the promise. Receive the promise. In Acts, the 26th chapter, you have Paul bound, standing before King Agrippa. He has to give a defense. He has to give an answer of why the Jews are accusing him. This man, Paul, is explaining He's saying to him, he's appealing to Agrippa's knowledge of the very points that are written in the law and in the writings. The very points that the prophets are making known to the fathers. In Acts 26 chapter, you see, then Agrippa said unto Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day. Before thee, touching all the things whereof I'm accused of the Jews. The Jews had some things against Paul. They had some things against Paul. But Paul's going to be able to explain. He says, I'm happy. When you think about Paul's preaching, how it was preaching, he was preaching the gospel with the Holy Spirit given from above. You got to think how bold and confident Paul must have been in this situation. Just give me an opportunity to speak for myself. Nevertheless, it says, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, be, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Paul is appealing to Agrippa's knowledge. He's saying, you know this. You know better. In verse 4, he says, my manner of life from my youth, which was at first among mine own nation at Jerusalem. Know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning. If they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I am stand or I stand and I am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Paul was using a little bit of wisdom here. He was saying, wait a minute. I'm going to use what this man knows and I'm going to be able to speak on this defense. Not only am I going to be able to speak on my own defense, but I'm going to be able to use this opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's like, Agrippa, you know these things. You, you know the promises that were made unto our fathers. I'm not separating the, uh, us versus a you. I'm letting you know we're on the equal level platform because we have requisite knowledge of these very things that transpired through the life of Christ. Nevertheless, we continue to read. 
He says, I now am stand and I'm judge of the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise are 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? It shouldn't be incredible, King Agrippa, because this is the very promise that all of the prophets were alluding to. This is the very promise that all of the prophets were giving us a shadow of understanding into. They were instructing us to know that this blessedness is going to come to all of God's people. He says, I'm judge in verses six and seven for this promise. The hope of this promise is what I am judged of. Paul just wanted Agrippa to be able to receive the understanding of this very promise. Receive the information requisite in order for his soul's salvation. He transitions into explaining and he asks, what, this, the great God of heaven, think about what God has done for his people. Time would fail me to talk about all of the wonders and the magnificence that God was able to show forth to be able to preserve his people. Why is it such a great thing that God is able to raise the dead? That gives him an excellent opportunity to be able to preach the gospel. If you're struggling with your friends, if you're struggling with your family members, if you're struggling I don't even know if you can do this at, co- at school or at work anymore. But if you're struggling with individuals to be able to explain them the gospel, start with the resurrection and then work backwards. Why is it such a great thing that God is able to raise the dead? I don't care if it was your grandmother. I don't care if it was your mother. I don't care if it was a loved one or a friend that has passed. It doesn't matter because God is powerful enough to be able to raise us all up. That is the promise that we ought to hold on to. First Corinthians, the sixth chapter at verse number 14. This is what Paul is explaining to the church there. Just as he raised up Christ, he will also raise us up. Nevertheless, Paul uses this to be able to go forth with his speech, with his discourse. Why is it such a great thing? We'll do a little bit of reading. He says, I verily thought in verse nine with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even to strange cities. It's kind of funny as I was reading this. I'm like, man, Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, having to go and uh, to various cities to be able to preach the gospel. He's one of the very individuals that would cause those individuals to spread in the first place. Nevertheless, this is Paul making his plea to Agrippa. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me with and me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking in the tongue, uh, speaking and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, who you persecute. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and those things and the, and the which... I will appear unto thee, delivering thee 
from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. I'm here to be able to open your eyes to turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. He pleased with Agrippa again. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout the coast of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. He's explaining his conversion story. He's explaining his conversion story. He started with the resurrection of Christ. He's making reference to how he would have gotten this message, what he had done wrong, how he had changed, and how it is now his plight to be able to change the Gentiles, to turn their heart and turn them to repent and turn towards God. He continues to plead with Agrippa, but many of you remember this story, how it would finish. Nevertheless, as we drop down to verse number 27, Paul says, King Agrippa, after Festus has already called him mad, called him mad saying, wait a minute, you don't know what you're talking about. No, no, no. I know exactly what I'm talking about. He pleads with Agrippa one more time and we'll hasten to a conclusion in this text. Says, King Agrippa, believe thou the prophets. I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, almost thou persuaded me to be a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except in these chains or in these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose and the governor and Bernice, and they sat with them. And when they are gone aside and they talked between themselves, saying, this man does nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa to Festus, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed to Caesar. What do we see here? Paul uses his platform, as he does many times, to be able to preach through that promise that God had given to his people. He was preaching the resurrection of the dead. He was preaching Jesus Christ. He was preaching that this promise was made to our fathers. We shouldn't have been unfamiliar with this. If you were just reading your Old Testament, if you were just reading the scriptures and hearing to what God had for us, that there was a blessing that was going to come to all families of the earth. That there was a suffering servant that was going to be sent. That even though this servant was going to suffer, even though this servant was going to have to put on an agonizing death, even though he was going to have to be put in the grave, that this servant would be able to be resurrected. It was through that resurrection that Paul was able to explain to King Agrippa. You almost persuaded me to be a Christian. We don't need to be in the seat of King Agrippa where we're almost persuaded. We need to be almost and all together. We need to be assured that God's word is true. So whether it's with our spouse or whether it's with the parent-child dynamic, we understand that God's promises far surpass anything that can be promised in this earth. We have a promise of eternal life. That's why when Peter is explaining this very message in Acts, the second chapter, at verse number 36 through 38, those men and brethren stopping him, saying, what must we need to do in order to be saved? What did Peter respond? In verse 38 of Acts 2, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
We don't just stop there. But Peter calls it a promise in verse 39. He says, For the promise is unto you and unto your children and unto all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What beautiful, beautiful understanding. When we receive Christ, when we receive his words, when we're not above correction in our own lives, when we're not above instruction, when we're focused on the crown which we can receive, and we're ultimately focused on the promises that God has given us, we understand that there are blessings associated with it. Eternal blessings. An everlasting covenant that God has made with his people. I thank God for our brother Paul and his wisdom. Because Galatians, the third chapter, Paul spells this out. He explains this in Galatians, the third chapter. In Galatians, the third chapter. I know there's other scriptures like Hebrews, the ninth chapter, where it talks about in verse 14, Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot unto God. How much more so shall he be able to purge your conscience from dead works? The blood of Christ that he shed on Calvary's cross is able to purge our conscience from dead works. In verse 15, Paul makes reference to us being able to receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Time would fail me to talk about Hebrews 9, but right now we'll go to Galatians, the third chapter. Because in Galatians, the third chapter... Paul spells this out for us in Galatians, the third chapter. You might remember in Galatians, the third chapter in verse number eight, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying in these shall all nations be blessed. But when we drop down to verse 14, he spells this out for us that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. It's through our faith in the word of God. It's through our faith in what the Holy Spirit has provided, given to man, both prophets and apostles alike, for them to pin down. For posterity's sake, we can read the word of God and understand what we need to do in order to be saved. It's the promise of the Spirit. Look here in Galatians 3 and verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, if it be confirmed, no man can disannul or add to it. But nevertheless, we see the promise of spirit through faith in verse 14. Last I checked, Romans the 10th chapter, verse 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Why is it important what the Holy Spirit gave to man? Because what the Holy Spirit gave to man comes directly from the mind of God the Father. We get that in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. The Holy Spirit searches the deep things, yeah, even the deep things of God. According to Ephesians, the third chapter in verses three through five, able to give these men the information that they need to either teach or to write. We are in such a blessed position because we still have access to that to this day. We can receive the promise of the spirit, but we can't receive it, receive it on our own accord. We can't receive it being hesitant to the word of God. We can't receive it being hesitant to instruction. We can't receive it being hesitant to correction. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. We receive it in hearing the gospel, hearing what Christ Jesus has done for us, that he came into this, this, this word, right? This word that was from the beginning. It was with God. It was God. This word put on flesh. As many as received this word, he gave them powers to be the sons of God. How do we become sons of God? That's synonymous to say, how do we become Christians? How do we become a part of God's church? How do we find ourselves in the right position to be able to receive this promise when God gives us that final well done. You got to hear that gospel. You got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came into this world to go about doing good. 
He came into this world to finish the work that God sent him to do. And he finished that work on Calvary's cross. That's where he shed his blood. Didn't we just sing that song? At Calvary, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not that my Lord was crucified. It was through his crucifixion and where his blood was shed. Why is his blood important? Because through his blood, we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. Why are sins significant? Because if, according to John 8, 21, we die in our sins, where Christ is right now, we cannot go. Where is Christ? Well, the Bible would say, according to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, that he's right now at the right hand of God. Where, according to Hebrews 7, verse 25, he ever liveth to make an intercession for us. He is the forerunner going into heaven's eternal glory, the true tabernacle. If we too want to enter into that, we have to obey this gospel. We cannot be riddled in this life with sins. In obeying this gospel, that's how we can have the remission of sins. We hear the gospel. We believe it with all of our heart. Come confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the son of God. Having full assurance of faith that he did indeed get up from the grave. Best believe Christ was crucified. He did die. He did shed his blood for us. But where people's faith struggles is many people don't believe he got up. We believe that he got up just as Paul believed. We see Paul speaking about this resurrection. Do you think that God who created this entire world before we were even thought of in Hebrews, the 11th chapter at verse number three and four, by faith, we understand that the world was created and the world was framed. Do you think that the same God that created this entire world in which we live is not able to raise the dead? Specifically, his own righteous son. We got to hear that gospel, believe it, come confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, repenting of our sins. Sins are significant, they separate us from God. We do not need to be at a guilty distance against God. Because if we remain at a guilty distance against God, it's not his promises that we need to be concerned with, but it's his consequences. His indignation, his wrath on all those who know not God nor obey his gospel. Second Thessalonians, the first chapter, verse seven through nine, will expound on that. We have to believe that. Repent of our sins. Luke 13, three, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Acts 26, Paul is explaining how he is trying to offer up these Gentiles to turn to God and bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. No longer riddled in fornication, no longer riddled in uh, idolatry and drunkenness and all of the works of the flesh. But he wants to turn them to God, to repentance. We too have to repent, change our lives, change our mind. And then change our action to be able to be commensurate to what the word has prescribed for us. Then we go down in the watery grave of baptism. Galatians, the third chapter would explain that it's that promise of the spirit. The promise of the spirit is eternal life. Acts 2 and verse 38 and 39. Yes, there were the Holy Spirit was able to endow individuals with miraculous. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the gift of eternal life. We'll conclude in 1 Peter, the first chapter, but we need to be baptized. Galatians 3 and verse 27, those that have been baptized with Christ have put on Christ. Peter explains in Acts 2 and verse 38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then you will receive this gift. This promise is unto you and unto your children and unto all that are far off. We need to be baptized, Romans 6 and 3, into his death. By one body, we're, by one spirit, we're baptized into his one body. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse number 13. Finally, we'll finish in 1 Peter. And 1 Peter, receiving this promise, and the lesson will be yours. In the book of 1 Peter, 
Peter will explain this at the beginning in chapter 1. Making reference to our faith, the salvation of our souls. You might remember that there is an inheritance in verse 1 that's incorruptible. It's undefiled and it fades not away. It's reserved for you in heaven. This is that promise. We don't have to, at the end of the day, be like, God, you promised. He is not going to go back on his promises. They are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Verse number seven for our consideration. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perishes, Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, who having not seen you love in whom, though now you have seen him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. That there is the promise that Paul is referencing in Galatians 3. It's the salvation of our souls. It's the blessedness that goes unto all that would believe on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear the gospel message, believe it, come confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, repenting of your sins, and being baptized into that watery grave of baptism, where you can have your sins remitted, and the Lord will add you to his church. Not any man's church, but the church you can find and read about in your Bible. It's the church which belongs to his son, and last time I checked, his son's name was Jesus Christ. That is the gospel message. Let us continue to be faithful unto death. Not thinking any lightly of God's promises, but looking for that glorious appearing. Let's come now as we stand and sing a song of the Savior's invitation.